what happened was when we gave up our independence, when we we went to outside sources more and more for our feed, we went to outside sources for a lot of things like our eggs, our pulps, our marketing. And then when we did that, then that was the end of the company as far as Mel and I feed the cooperative. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. On today's show, we brought back an old favorite, Jim Nielsen, my dad, and he tells us the history of raising turkeys in central Utah and gives us a little bit of his experience of what it was like raising turkeys. And then we talk about the evolution of where it is today. Let's give it a listen. Start with here in San Pete County when the first pioneers came here. They soon started in the uh, sugar beet industry and raising sugar beets at this uh, altitude seemed to work for them. And so throughout central Utah and up through Utah County and in uh, the Logan area, Salt Lake area, the church started up the UNI, Utah, Idaho Sugar Company. And that was probably in about the 18. 80s, 1870s, they started that up. And my family here, uh, they raised sugar beets up until mm, probably about 1968. But during those years when the sugar business prospered, they built a large sugar factory here in the Moroni area. And uh, it uh, actually started on fire and burned up the sugar-making part of the factory. The storage part of the factory, which was a concrete building and a, a huge stack with boilers, they were able to save that. But the, as far as the sugar-making part of the factory was destroyed. So a group of farmers that started raising turkeys in the 1930s they started up uh, raising turkeys, and at first, in the first years of the the turkey business, um, they actually slaughtered their own, butchered their own turkeys, and they dressed them up in what was called New York dressed. They left the feet on, and they had, and of course, they plucked the feathers and cleaned most of the insides out, and they sold them. New York dressed and my dad talked about when he was young he used to help a local family here butcher and dress their turkeys and then they shipped them and if you look at a lot of the old like Norman Rockwell type calendars and magazines that featured dads bringing home turkeys to their families and you'll see them with the head still on and the feet sticking out there. That's the way they uh, marketed their turkeys back then. So in the 1940s, a group of men got together and they formed a co-op. And they took over the old sugar factory building. 
and they started uh, a co-op raising turkeys. And they used that part of the old building to build a feed mill. And they started uh, manufacturing their own feed, their own mash for their turkeys. And eventually, I think, I'm pretty sure it was in 1948, they incorporated the Moroni Feed Company, which was a cooperative owned by those who, uh, there was not only turkey growers, but there was some also chicken farmers and others that were also joined in the co-op. And they started, like I say, to do their own feed. Eventually, as the company grew, they started up their own processing plant where they killed the turkeys and processed them. Eventually, they had other departments. They they started their own hatchery, and they hatched their own turkey eggs. And at the altitude that we were, which was about 5,500 feet above sea level, they discovered that the eggs weren't getting enough oxygen in the hatchers, in, in the incubators. So they figured out ways to humidify the incubators and the hatchers just right. They also figured out how to pump oxygen into the hatchers and the incubators so that the turkeys hatched better and lived better. And they started their own breeder farms. They had some starting out here at the south end of the a valley, which was just a little bit warmer in the wintertime. And then they eventually moved down into Washington County, down in the southwest corner of Utah, where St. George and Washington is. And they had breeder farms down there, which stayed warm pretty much year-round. It was only uh, a little bit less than 2,000 feet above sea level there, and warmer temperatures. And the hens that uh, laid the eggs, they did bed down there in the warmer weather. So they'd truck the eggs from the breeder farms up here into Moroni, and they hatched the eggs right here. They also started a partnership with a family down in California named Orlop. And Orlop had a line of turkeys that they had bred that had extra large breasts and white meat. And they started raising these turkeys and they found that because of the high altitude here, even though the winters were quite cold, the nighttime temperatures at night cooled off like it could be 90 degrees during the day in the summertime, but it would cool down even down into the 50s at night and was a lot better for the, the turkeys to grow. And they found that they could grow those Orlop turkeys with the extra white meat, the extra breast. They found out that they could grow them longer and heavier and they found a niche in the market that they could compete with other turkey companies throughout the states with this heavy tongue. 
And there was a demand for that heavy tom in certain places like in uh, large restaurants, large restaurant chains on both the East Coast and the West Coast. And they were able to fill that niche in the market for several years with their Orlock heavy tom. They also had their own uh, service station when the growers needed to fix their vehicles or buy their gas for their vehicles or whatever, they had their own service station. They had their own hardware store where they bought medication and things for their turkeys, things to equip their their turkey barns. They had their own store. Uh, they had their own propane service company to deliver propane to all the brooder coops and everything so that they had their own uh, deal there. And like I say, they had their own breeder farms and it was working quite well. They also started their own marketing company that you used to work for, which was Norbest. As the company grew, the number of growers grew and my family, they, my dad, he was kind of a, I guess what you'd call an in and outer. Uh, there were some years when he would raise turkeys and then some years when he had discouraged and quit for a year or two and then start up again. But I can remember growing up, I can remember he started out by uh, his first flock of turkeys. There was 2,000 of them that he had custom brooded, which meant that somebody that had a brooder raise them up to the age where they could move them out of the brooder into the outside, which was around six weeks. And I can remember that first year he had 2,000 bronze hands. And he just had a hand dug well that he dug out in one of our pastures here with a hand pitcher pump. And I remember going out there on my bike about a mile and a half out of town from where we lived and we'd always have a bottle of water there to prime the pump and I would pump water to hand pump water to those turkeys two or three times a day. We hauled all our feed in gunny sacks. We didn't have a feed truck with an automatic loading system and all of our feeders were homemade. I'd take the a large tire like a dump truck tire lit it in half, take a barrel, cut holes in the bottom of the barrel, and then fasten it to the tire to form a feeder to make a turkey feeder. We had those, and then my dad would make them out of plywood. They were pretty nice ones, lasted for a lot of years. But that's the way we fed our turkeys. And he grew. That first year, he had like 2,000. Next year, he had like 6,000. He eventually bought... He liked Studebakers, and he was able to find a Studebaker feed truck, and he loved it. And we probably got up to about 12,000 turkeys a year when my dad had it. And then discouragement came for a few years, and then he started up again. We bought a, oh, it was when I was probably 24 years old. We bought a smaller turkey set up here in Moroni, a brooder coop, and we built a couple of sheds out here on our farm, and we started up again, and 
from 81 through 84, we had that smaller turkey coop, which we sold, and then I built a bigger setup in 1984, a brooder that could brood 15,000 turkeys. And that's when I grew and built more grow-out barns besides my brooder. And I would raise up to 120,000 turkeys a year. So we grew from from 2,000 up to 120,000 a year. And then uh, I sold out in the year 2001 to my in-laws. And I had originally bought it from my father-in-law, and they wanted it back in their family. And then my son, James, your brother, he started up again in about 2008 until about 2014. And we raised turkeys in his setup, which my uncle had built during Moroni years ago, back in the 60s. And he was able to acquire that setup again, a brooder and some grow-out barns. And we started up again in the turkeys and uh, until 2014, uh, Moroni Feed kind of went out of business and a company named Pittman Farms picked it up. They've changed their program. They have uh, organic turkeys and they feed them organic feed. And that's their program now that they have. And, like I say, we haven't raised any turkeys since 2014. We haven't had any turkeys. But they're still raising them here. It's kind of been tough for them. They've uh, become more contract growers now. Back in the old days, we were independent growers and kind of our own bosses. We were a cooperative. And... We had that niche, like I say, with the heavy toms. And as time went on, we kind of got away from the heavy tom program because the rest of the nation, they started to fill in that niche with heavy toms with the breeds of turkeys that they had. And they were raising more heavy toms by accident and faster than we were with their breed of, of toms, the Nicholas and the BUTA and a few others. And they were able to kind of take over that or keep up with us as far as the heavy tom market. And eventually the company kind of made changes. They got away from the Ordot breed of turkey, which as time went on, the Ordot turkey became more susceptible to diseases, mainly in their legs, like synovitis and a few things like that. And the other turkeys seem to live better. I know that when we were in the business, when we hatched out of the Moroni hatchery with the injected oxygen, the turkeys that came, that we started buying at sea level, that were hatched down there at sea level in California were much better turkeys. They lived better. They did better. They grew better. Just the fact that they were same breed of turkey, very same breeder farms. But just the fact that they were hatched down there at, at sea level made a big difference. 
And so eventually they quit having their own hatcheries and that did not work well. We, I remember they had to bring them from back in, I think it was Missouri. And so they either brought them I-80 or they brought them I-70 or they brought them clear down around into New Mexico, um, which would be I-40 and then come up that through there, depending on the weather. And one year they got a bad forecast that said they wouldn't be able to bring them I-70 or I-80. They ended up turning around, backtracking, coming back up through New Mexico, and those turkeys were on the truck for like 48 hours. And we got them, and we lost right off the bat 25% of our flock, which they didn't charge us for the poles, of course, because they died right off the bat. But then your production wasn't up high enough to meet your needs as far as your costs and everything. So that was a bad deal. I think what happened was when we gave up our independence, when we we went to outside sources more and more for our feed, we went to outside sources for a lot of things like our eggs, our colts, our marketing. And then when we did that, then that was the end of the company as far as Mel and I feed the cooperative. And that's where we ended our conversation. I want to thank my dad for coming on and taking the time. Men, thank you all for listening. Until next time.